Good morning. It is truly a joy, uh, a blessing that God has given us that we're able to be here together to pour out our hearts in worship, uh, to come together and, and study his word, that we might come to know him, come to know his heart, his character, his will for our lives. Uh, about a month ago, uh, I started a, a series about how to truly improve our, our worship. Uh, this is something that we've been thinking about uh, a good bit as a congregation um, with some of our technological uh, updates, getting songs on the screen, trying to learn some new songs, um, and trying to spend some time talking about our, our song worship in particular. Um, and, and I kind of put this series on hold for a little while. Um, you know, we, we had a week where the culture around us was focusing on the, the resurrection, and so we, we focused on that. We had our youth weekend and um, fo- focused on uh, a follow-up to that. Uh, but honestly, those those were kind of excuses um, because I I wanted to be able to take some time um, to to think and pray a little bit more about this. Um, this is a, a difficult uh, topic for me. I, I want to make sure uh, that I, what I present regarding worship is indeed coming from God's word, uh, not from my own uh, personal preferences or, or opinions or experiences. Uh, or desires, or, or fears. Uh, and I want to encourage you to do the same today. Uh, I want to encourage you to lay whatever preconceptions, or tendencies, or ideals regarding worship that you have down, um, and let God's word be the fresh foundation uh, on which we're, we're building. Uh, some of the things that we're going to look at today might feel like they're pushing a little bit in one direction. Um, and some of the things that we're going to look at might feel like they're pushing a little bit in another direction. Um, but, but I want you uh, to make sure that, that whether, it's, uh, whether what is being looked at is, is sounding a little liberal or what we're looking at is sounding a little bit too conservative, if it's coming from God's word, I encourage you to give both equal weight today. Let's build on the foundation of God's word. Let's go, let, to allow God's word to guide us wherever it will. We, we talked about it in this series. We started with uh, what are we seeking to get out of worship? And we, we really came to realize that from a biblical perspective, it's not primarily about what I'm seeking. Uh, it's about what the Lord is seeking. Uh, the most foundational aspect of worship is that it's not about us. It's about the Lord. Uh, that it's intended to be a sweet-smelling aroma to him. Uh, and so everything that we need to do needs to be focused on him, his will, what it is that is, is going to truly honor and glorify him. And then we looked at uh, what we're putting into worship. If we're going to genuinely give God the glory that he deserves, we see that God deserves uh, and even demands the very best that we have to offer. So we talked about, you know, how do we give the first fruits when we're giving the fruit of our lips, as Hebrew says, how can we give God the first fruits? How can we give him the firstling of our flock, so to speak? Um, how can we prepare our hearts uh, and, and pre- prepare our minds to effectively uh, give him the best we have to offer? But what I want us to consider today is, is what is holding us back? You know, sometimes we may indeed be preparing our hearts and cultivating a passion for the Lord day by day, preparing our minds to engage in meaningful worship, uh, and stirred up and ready to allow our, our passion to overflow in the melody of our hearts. And then as we get ready to worship, it just kind of falls a little bit flat. Um, 
Maybe all that bottled up passion comes out in more of a slow, sad, sad feeble leak of outward expression. Uh, what, what's the problem? What may be holding us back or getting in the way of us genuinely expressing uh, the, the, the glory and the honor that God deserves within our worship? I want to look at two main points today. And the first one is going to come from this passage uh, that, that Luke read for us. We're going to read a little bit more context here together. Um, but we need to recognize that some influences and expectations uh, of ourselves and those around us may keep us from openly expressing passion uh, in our worship, from being as open and expressing our passion to the Lord. Uh, look here in, in 2 Samuel 6 with me. If your Bibles aren't already open there, if you'll turn them there with me now. 2 Samuel 6. Remember, David here uh, in the second half of this passage uh, is, is now bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem for the second time. Uh, and we see how it is that he is praising the Lord as he brings in uh, this Ark. Starting in verse 13, it says, And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. If you want to skip down to the passage that Luke read for us in verse 20, it says, And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. What exactly is going on here? Um, and, and why has God included this in his word? What is he teaching us? What is he communicating to us? Why is it that, that Michael is despising David? Um, you know, some have, have flippantly said that, that David here is, is dancing in his underwear. Is that what's going on? Is, is there something legitimately indecent about what David is doing here? I, I think that's obviously not the case. Um, first of all, the linen ephod that David is wearing uh, was the common garment of the priests. Uh, you may remember in 1 Samuel 22, when Doeg the Edomite kills 85 of the priests at the city of Nob, it specifically says there uh, in 1 Samuel 22, 18, that he killed 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. This is the common garment that, that the priests would wear. Um, and there was nothing inherently indecent about it. It was in some senses an under or an inner garment. And as such, it was very basic, nothing elaborate or, or, or fancy. Um, and there was nothing inherently indecent about David's dancing either here. Uh, this was not what we might think of, you know, in senses of, of some sensual or licentious dancing. Uh, it was a bodily expression of celebration to the Lord, a common in their culture, especially common when welcoming in a king, a conquering king. 
Um, and so I don't think there is anything inherently indecent about what David is doing. Well, what, what's Michael's problem with this? What, what is Michael despising David for? Look, look again at what she says in verse 20. It says, and David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. How the king honored himself today. What's what's the issue here? What, What is she upset about? Well, she's saying that sarcastically. Effectively, she's saying you aren't acting like a king here. You're not honoring yourself. You're being like one of the common people. Let them celebrate and dance in their linen ephods. Uh, You know, you should be exalted on a horse or a chariot. You should be exalted in in some type of clothing that that expresses your honor as a king. What's David's response? Verse 21. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. It says there at the end of verse 21, and I will celebrate before the Lord. Verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. David says, it's not about me. It's not about me getting honor. I, I'm not, I'm not going to be in the chariot. I'm not going to be riding the horse. I'm not going to be wearing the, the king's you know, royal garb because it's not about me. I'm not the one that was being celebrated. It's about the Lord. Do we have a, an, a before the Lord focus here? We, we need to remember that worship is first and foremost before the Lord and not allow appearances to be the primary influence of how we express passion in our worship. How much of how we express ourselves in worship is dictated by the expectations of those around us or by maybe the church culture in which we grew up or, or in which we are in, how it will appear to other people? And how much is dictated by the Lord? By what he sees? By what he desires? By what he has spoken of and shown us within his word? I remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns us against practicing our righteousness before men to be seen by them. That can't be our focus. What, whether it be in, in praying, whether it be in uh, fasting, whether it be in, in giving, whether it be in any outward expression of service or, or worship to the Lord, our focus can't primarily be, uh, uh, our focus cannot be uh, about appearances. The way that we conduct ourselves in that can't be molded by what it is that other people are going to see. That's not the focus. And this really can lead us in two potential directions. We could either be focused on what it is that people are seeing and think, well, I I want to be more exuberant and more expressive in my my worship because I want others to see that my heart is in it. I want that to be evident. Well, where where is our focus? Or it may lead us the other direction. We may say, well, I, I don't want to be too expressive in my worship because it might come across to people like I'm being a showy. Or, or, or I'm drawing attention to myself. Um, and it, it's kind of maybe looked down upon in, in this church culture. And so I, I don't want to do that because of what people see. If that's what's directing the way that we worship, if that's the primary influence uh, that's determining how we worship, we, our, our focus is wrong in either case. 
And Jesus says in Matthew 6 that if we're doing what we do in service to him because of what men see, then we have no reward from our Father who's in heaven. That cannot be our focus. We've essentially made it about being before the church or before the world instead of about being before the Lord. Remember as well, John chapter 12, we studied this recently uh, in our, our Tuesday night, our midweek Bible study, where Mary Magdalene comes in uh, as Jesus is, is eating there at the table, and, and she takes a pound of expensive ointment, and she anoints Jesus' feet with it. How did that come across to all the people in the room? You know, at first they, they have to kind of get, get their bearings, get acclimated to the overwhelming fragrance that has filled this room. Uh, and, and essentially the response is, whoa, Mary, uh, that, that's a little bit much. You know, that, that's kind of overkill. Tone it down a little bit. Uh, don't be so showy. Don't, don't be so, uh, you know, dramatic about this. Um, you know, maybe just a couple drops would have been fine. Uh, in fact, you know, same sum that for more practical purposes, like, like giving to the poor. What's Jesus' response? In John 12, verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus says Mary's focus is in the right place. Her level of exuberance and devotion is appropriate to the one that she is seeking to honor. Her focus is before the Lord, before Jesus, her Lord. And so let her express her devotion freely and fully. There are going to be some other principles that, that we're going to, to see uh, and, and need to apply here beyond just this. But, but let's make sure that we don't have the attitude of Michael. That we don't have the attitude of Judas who speaks up and says, oh, you, you shouldn't have done that. You should have used it for, for some more practical purpose. Let's have the attitude of David. Let's have the attitude, the heart of Mary. But another thing that we need to consider uh, here, and really this isn't another thing. This is the same thing. <laughs> is that what God sees and is seeking should indeed be our focus. You know, earlier in 2 Samuel 6, um, David had, had sought to transport the ark to Jerusalem uh, another time. And, and I don't know that, that we see that he was any less exuberant, any less expressive, any less uh, emotion-filled in his worship to the Lord. But in that case, he wasn't doing it according to God's will. Uh, the, the, the method in which he was seeking the Lord was not uh, according to God's word. He recognizes in 1 Chronicles 15, 13, he says, we did not seek God according to the rule. And that was abhorrent enough to the Lord that it called down fire from on high. And so worship with a before the Lord focus must be worship that is according to God's will. It must be worship that is according to his will, uh, his word, his preferences, not ours. And so we aren't saying here that our attitude needs to be, well, it doesn't matter what other people think. You do you. Pour out your heart to the Lord in whatever way is most meaningful and whatever way is most natural and fulfilling to you. No, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. 
And so it, it's not just don't care what people think. You do whatever you feel like. It's don't care about what people think. Care about what the Lord thinks. Let that be the focus. Let that drive the way in which we uh, express our passion, express our worship to him. And so it's certainly possible that our passion and emotion may be improperly focused, expressed in ways that would be contrary to God's will. Remember the first step in successful worship that we talked about in our first lesson is, is listen. We need to listen to what it is that God desires. But, but let's set that caveat uh, aside for a moment to get back to the main point that we were making here. There is no such thing as worship that is too passionate. That there is no such thing as worship that is just too heartfelt, uh, too emotion-filled. If, if our passion is directed by the Lord, to the Lord, according to his will, we, our level of passion is never going to exceed the worthiness of the one whom we're worshiping. And along those lines, I think we need to recognize that it is very biblical for our bodies to express the sentiments of our hearts in worship to the Lord. And I think we'll see this in both an Old Testament and a New Testament context. Bodily expression or posture is inherent in many of the biblical words for worship. And the etymology of the root meaning of some of the most common Greek and Hebrew words, it, it originates from the idea of our posture. Um, look at the uh, primary Hebrew word for worship, shaha. Uh, literally, it means to depress, i.e. to prostrate, especially reflexively. That means to prostrate oneself in homage to royalty or to God, to bow self down, crouch, fall down flat. Is that something that, that we normally do? Well, let, let's look at the, the New Testament, the primary New Testament word for worship, proskuneo. Uh, it means uh, meaning to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand, to fawn or crouch to, i.e. literally or figuratively to prostrate oneself in homage. And it's not only the, these two primary words for worship. One of the Old Testament words for praise, uh, maybe the second most common word for praise, second to hallel, is the word yada, uh, literally to use, i.e. hold out the hand. Physically, to throw a stone, an arrow at, uh, at or away, especially to revere or worship with extended hands. Intensively to bemoan by wringing the hands. What one of the Old Testament words gives us this idea of, of reaching out our hands to the Lord that, that didn't originate with modern uh, concert-going culture, right? Uh, that, that originated even in the Old Testament. In fact, we'll see it all throughout the Old Testament. And so posture and bodily expression is not just an afterthought when it comes to worship. Uh, in fact, it is... What, one of the most inherent aspects of where we get some of our biblical words for worship. And so we see many examples of different postures or bodily expressions in worship or prayer uh, in particular throughout the Bible. Um, and, and I'll focus uh, largely on some New Testament passages here. Uh, we see the idea inherent in two of the words that we looked at of prostrating oneself, Jesus himself in the garden. As he is expressing deep emotion to the Lord. We're told in Matthew 26 and verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. 
We see in Acts 20 and verse 36, uh, when Paul is speaking with the Ephesian elders, it says there, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them together and prayed. We see uh, this one in an Old Testament context. Solomon, um, as he is, is praying before all the people, before all the assembly in 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 13, it says, Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. You know, what would you think? Jared has the closing prayer uh, today. What, what, what would you think if, if Jared came up here and he got in front of everybody and he got down on his knees and lifted his hands like this? We, we, we would probably think, Jared, that, that's a little bit weird. What are you doing? You know, um, we, we don't really do that here. We, we, we get up. But that's exactly what, what Solomon does, Right? And it's intended, it's not intended to be a show. Granted, what we're talking about, if if this is before people, then let's not do it. Let's get rid of it. But if it's before the Lord, it's intended to express reverence to him and openness before him. That's a biblical concept. And again, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, we're told, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarrel. To pray lifting holy hands. You see that all throughout the Old Testament, we see that in one of our words for praise, there's an inherent aspect of that. As we said, that that doesn't originate from modern concert-going culture. That that originates from a biblical concept of reaching out to the Lord, lifting up our prayer, lifting up our, uh, our hearts to the Lord or our praise to the Lord. We see Jesus in John 11 and verse 41. It says, Jesus lifted up his eyes. And said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You know, I I think perhaps um, as as we teach our children the concept of of how to pray, it's understandable that we teach them to close their eyes. We don't want them to be distracted and and doing all sorts of other things, right? We want them to focus on what it is that that we're praying. We we teach them maybe to to bow their heads, maybe to fold their hands so that they're not doing other things with their hands, right? Um, That's understandable, right? But but it's not really much anywhere a biblical concept that, that we close our eyes when we pray, right? That, that's primarily a cultural idea. Jesus lifts his eyes to the Lord. And so if we truly want to be biblical in how we think about worship, let's be biblical. Uh, let, let's think about how it is that we are praying, how it is that we're worshiping, how it is that we're expressing the, the passions of our heart to the Lord. Um, and, and none of these is the right way to, to pray, the right way to, to worship. Um, Carl uh, included a, a, a poem for me in, in the newsletter. Um, I, I'd inc- encourage you to read it. Uh, I won't go into detail about it, but it's the, the prayer of Cyrus Brown, um, who uh, a bunch of different people are saying, well, this is the way that you should pray. This is the way that you should pray. This is the way that you pray. And Cyrus Brown says, well, I fell in the well the other day, uh, and I prayed the prayingest prayer that I've ever prayed standing on my head. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's not that there, there's one right way to, to do this. Uh, God hasn't enjoined upon us any of these ways. And if we do none of these bodily postures, that doesn't mean that we're not truly worshiping, right? What we need to think about is what am I expressing to the Lord 
in my prayers? What, what, what am I expressing to the Lord in the way that I express my prayers, in the way that I express my worship, through, through my bodily posture, through the expression on my face, and certainly, first and foremost, through my heart and the words that are coming out of my mouth? But let's think about that purposefully and thoughtfully and, and biblically. And let me draw our attention towards something else as well, though. While worship is first and foremost before the Lord, love will consider how my worship affects those around me, seeking to build up my brethren in everything I do. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to start by reading verse 1 through 4 here. Uh, Paul tells the brethren here, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Here, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that within the assembly, it's not just about them and the Lord. Here in the first century context of miraculous gifts, speaking in tongue to the Lord was a meaningful and edifying experience for the individual. But we're going to see even more clearly as we continue to read some of this passage um, that it wasn't appropriate for the assembly unless there was somebody to interpret. Just because it was coming from the heart, just because it was edifying to me, didn't, doesn't mean that that was actually accomplishing what God intended. Look, look at some other passages here as we read further. Look, look down in verse 16. Starting in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be give, giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Skip down a little bit to verse 23. Verse 23 says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Where's Paul Putting the emphasis here, what, what, what is he trying to correct among these brethren? They have a before the Lord focus, it seems, right? Uh, he's giving thanks well enough. Between me and the Lord, this is, this is edifying. This is wonderful. This is a way that I can express the passion of my heart. What, what if the Corinthian brethren said, well, Paul, it's, it's not about the brethren around me. It's not about what outsiders see when they come in. It's before the Lord. As long as my heart is in it and it's edifying to me, it doesn't matter what others see or how it affects them. Well, that's not how it works. 
Yes, our worship is not to be focused on what will please others around me, what will meet the expectations of others around me, what will impress others around me. But if our worship is going to be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, if it's going to be before the Lord, guess what? God cares about those people around me. And God wants those people around me to be built up. So I can't give a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord without giving thought to how this is going to affect my brethren, right? And so he encourages the brethren here in uh, the end of this chapter, verse 40, he says, but all things should be done decently and in order, right? So that doesn't mean that, that I, just because I can most genuinely express my passion in, in this way, um, that may be within what would be okay in God's sight, um, doesn't mean that I can't, you know, that, that I can go ahead and do that without giving thought to whether or not that's going to build up my brother, whether or not that might distract my brother, whether or not that's going to draw them attention away from the Lord, right? What we're trying to do is to draw everybody's attention to the Lord. And that's what we want to communicate. Um, so we do need to give thought. If th- think about Ephesians 5.19. When we're told about singing, what, what does he say we're supposed to do? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, right? Colossians 3.16, teaching and admonishing one another. It's not just in this context about me and the Lord. Part of my worship is about one another. Uh, Hebrews 10.24 and 25, uh, in the assembly, we're to consider how to stir one another up to loving good works. And so let's make sure it's first and foremost about being before the Lord, a sweet-smelling aroma to him, but, but let's remember that God cares about my brethren, and them growing, and them being encouraged, and them being drawn closer to him. So we talked about some influences and expectations may keep us from openly expressing passion. I want to look at one other side of that, though. Some influences and expectations may cause us to measure passion by worldly standards. Turn your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. I want you to notice uh, a warning that, that God through Moses gives the people here. Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 29, it says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, verse 30, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their God, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. What does God warn them against here? He doesn't simply warn them, don't go worship those gods, right? Don't worship idols. Don't worship pagan gods. He says, don't inquire, well, but how did they worship their gods? Don't let that influence the way you worship the Lord your God. You shall not worship the Lord your God that way. And so the way in which we express our passion to the Lord should not be influenced by looking at the nations around us. That's not the standard. That's not what should be uh, directing what it is that we measure passionate worship to be. While God-glorifying worship should indeed be passionate, that doesn't mean that it should be the same type of passion expressed at a football game or a political rally or a rock concert. 
those are not good standards to be measuring by because that passion primarily originates from the flesh, right? I'm not saying those things are inherently wrong, uh, but the passion that we experience in those settings are, are, is primarily being fueled by our five senses, right? But by what it is that we're experiencing in that, in that context, it, it fuels our, our passion. Well, what, what does God say is supposed to fuel our passion? God's spirit and God's word should be the primary influences directing the passion of our worship. Remember uh, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. We just made brief reference to it a moment ago. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. 18 says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Why, why is it that, that he talked about not being drunk and then suddenly starts talking about singing and worship? I think there's a clear contrast here from what fueled the passions of pagan worship around them and what should drive the Christian passion of worship. It's being filled with the spirit. It's, it's a relationship with God that should drive our passion. This passion is not uh, pri- primarily passion that comes from without. It's a passion that comes from within, from our relationship with the Lord. Colossians 3 and verse 16, what does he say is supposed to fuel our passion there? Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What is it that's fueling our worship? The word of God, the word of Christ, richly dwelling within us. It's, it's the overflow of, of, an un, uh, of an abundant indwelling of God's word and gratitude to the Lord. I, I think about, there's a quote uh, from uh, St. Augustine uh, near the end of the fourth century. He says, when it so happens that I am moved more by the singing than by what is sung, I confess that I have sinned. Augustine's not inspired, but, but I think he had a helpful thing for us to think about here. What's, what's fueling the passion of our worship? Is, is it primarily the, the experience of our five senses? You know, God designed music to be an effective outlet of our emotions and our passions, right? And God did say to sing, to make melody in our hearts, And and perhaps music even plays a role in in continuing to to stir up our hearts unto uh, expressing of of that passion. But but the music can't be the primary place where our passion is coming from. That's not how worship works. That's how entertainment works, right? Entertainment... It's where our five senses are being fed a well-crafted presentation intended to produce certain emotions and reactions within us. God says, don't be filled by the influences of the flesh. Be filled by my spirit. Worship is intended to be the very opposite of entertainment, right? We are not the receivers of worship primarily. We are the givers of worship. It's not primarily about the emotions and passions that worship brings to my heart. It's about the emotions and passions that I bring to worship 
and pour out to the Lord within those acts of worship. And so if, if the primary influence of, of passionate worship among us is, is what it is that we're hearing and seeing and feeling from without, then, then we've turned worship upside down. So let me ask, what, what are the primary influences in our worship? Does our worship have more in common with the songs we hear on the radio than it does with the book of Psalms? Shallow, repetitive lyrics with a catchy tune and melody that shows off the vocal range and musical proficiency of the singers? Or is it scripture-filled, spirit-filled, teaching and admonishing with the deep truths and rich imagery of God's word? A man named A.W. Tozer uh, said, Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Um, an early church father uh, named Clement of Alexandria, uh, who wrote uh, late into the second century, so ju- just about one generation removed from the death of, of the last apostle. Uh, Clement said this, he uses some, some uh, highfalutin language here, but we'll, uh, hopefully you can get the idea. Clement wrote, there is nothing in com- common between restrained chaste tunes and the licentiousness of intemperance. Therefore, over-colorful melodies are to be left to shameless carousals and to the honeyed and garish music of the courtesan. That, that's, that's like one generation removed from the Apostle John. And already there are influential voices within the church saying, hey, 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 let's be careful about allowing the, the musical taste of the culture around us to dictate our worship more than the Christ within us. Let me make one last point. While not all cultural influences are a matter of right and wrong, they must not be the standard we are measuring by. Look with me at Romans 14. Romans 14. And look in verses 5 through 8 together. Here you have some cultural influences going on in the church. It says in verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For we live, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Hopefully you see where the focus was there. Kind of keeps repeating that same phrase, to the Lord, to the Lord. But what we have going on here is that there's some cultural influences and background that, that is leading some brethren to celebrate some, some feast days that others didn't. You know, perhaps some Jewish brethren here who continue to observe that the Passover or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Trumpets Uh, And also cultural influences leading some brethren to eat certain meats that others aren't eating, don't believe they can eat. God doesn't say you must celebrate this feast, but he also doesn't say you must not celebrate this feast, right? These are areas where their culture uh, may guide them towards doing something and and they shouldn't be judging their brethren for that or or binding that upon them. 
Um, but it's, it's not that you must or you must not. It's not a matter of right and wrong. The important thing that he wants them to remember is that it is unto the Lord. Whether they're keeping the feast day, let them keep it unto the Lord. Whether they're not, let them, let them do it unto the Lord. Whether they're eating their meat or they're not eating that meat, let it be unto the Lord. Does that sound a lot like what David said? It's before the Lord. How, how do we apply this principle today? I think there's a lot, a lot of different things that we could talk about, but let, let me just give one example. Um, dressing up for worship, wearing a tie. Right, that, that's largely um, the influence of our culture. You're not going to see anybody wearing a necktie in the, in the Bible, right? Um, it's a way that's common in our society to express the importance of an occasion. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, for some, dressing up may communicate reverence, the importance of what it is that we're doing here. Uh, for others, it may, be, it may come across as a symbol of pride or pretense if they were to do it. For some, dressing down may communicate a casual attitude towards worship, not treating it with the importance and reverence it deserves. For others, it may be a decision of humility and not putting on a facade. Whether we dress up or dress down, may it be to the Lord. Right? That, that, that is a cultural influence. Uh, we need to give thought to how it's influencing our brethren. Love is going to do that, 1 Corinthians 14. But, but it's not a matter of right and wrong. Uh, we shouldn't treat it as such. Um, and we shouldn't be judging the one who does or judging the one who doesn't. We need to do it before the Lord, um, intending to communicate something that, that would genuinely be glorifying to him. Let's make another application. I think this applies to the songs that we sing. What makes a song sound more passionate and powerful to our ears? You know, most of the songs that we might find most passionate and powerful are written in a musical style that hardly even existed a few hundred years ago. Does that mean that the New Testament church just spent the first 1,500 plus years of its existence having no hymns that were passionate or powerful? Obviously not. No, what you and I find most passionate and powerful as far as the way a worship song is written is largely the product of modern culture. The kinds of music we've exposed ourselves to uh, and acquired a taste for are the kinds of music that, that we're going to find to be the most effective outlet of passion, right? Um, and that isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. But if that becomes the standard we're measuring our worship by, then we've turned our worship inside out and upside down. That's not where passion is supposed to come from. That's where passion is supposed to come out. <laughs> God tells us very clearly, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, where my worship is coming from is his spirit dwelling within my heart, a relationship with him, gratitude to him, his word richly dwelling within me and overflowing in what it is I'm expressing in worship. So what about us? What about you? What's holding you back? Is it expectations and influences that are keeping you from openly expressing your passion and worship? 
Let's be biblical in our thinking about that. Um, and, and I, I want to encourage the brethren here, um, if, if there are brethren who want to, to kneel or even prostrate themselves or, or, or raise their hands to the Lord, let, let's do that in consideration for one another, as 1 Corinthians 14 would direct us. But, but let's not have the heart of Michael or the heart of Judas in how we think about that. If we're genuinely doing it before the Lord, let us express passion um, that is passion worthy of him. Or perhaps, is it expectation and influences that cause you to measure passion by worldly standards? That it has to look this way, it has to sound this way, it has to feel this way, and that's, that's truly passionate worship. Brethren, uh, let's make sure that we are founding the way that we view worship, the way that we're expressing worship on what it is that God reveals to us about himself. And let it be, first and foremost, before the Lord. Let's do it with a genuine focus on him, not trying to meet some worldly ideal or put on some show or cater to earthly appetites. But may we let a passion fueled by God's word and God's spirit overflow in genuine and heartfelt worship that gives God the glory that he deserves. I hope that this lesson is helpful to you. Uh, how does it apply to you? What, what changes might you need to make and how you think about this, how you express your worship to the Lord? Let's make those changes. Um, and if anybody here is convicted in a way that, that they need to ask the help of these brethren, they need to confess some, some struggle, some sin before these brethren, that's why we're here. We're a spiritual family um, that God has given us so that we can support and encourage each other. We can pray for one another as we seek to be who he wants us to be. Um, if there's any way that we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, um, if you're not sure you have a relationship with the Lord uh, and, you, and you want to know more about, about how to gain that relationship, won't you make that need known? If any way we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, won't you make it known at this time by coming to the front as we stand and sing together?